Your life works. The Outline World Dispatch. It's Monday, December 4th, 2017. I'm Adrian Jeffries. Today on the show, we've got John Christian on a computer that makes black metal albums, and Anne Derek Gayo on why Netflix's synopses are so strange. Here's the dispatch. The future. The music you're hearing right now was created by a computer. It learned how to do this by listening to hours of black metal and chopping up what it heard to make something new. It's the product of a new artificial intelligence created by researchers CJ Carr and Zach Zukowski. Writer John Christian talked to them about what this AI does and what sets this album apart from other computer-created music. Hi, John. Good morning. Why is this computer making black metal specifically? Well, AI researchers often talk about design constraints that make a task more approachable. And in this case, the creators of the algorithm were pretty upfront about the fact that their design constraint, which worked in their favor, was arguably just how much black metal sucks. It's this noisy, frantic anti-music where extreme shifts in tempo and tone are considered features, not bugs. They also fed in the Beatles, though, and the results were pretty horrific because that's something where you expect sort of structured pop music, and it just sort of came out with this moaning British sludge. So, John, you discovered the black metal album, and you were really excited. I think the word that you used to describe it was incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, full disclosure, I used to listen to a lot of like lo-fi, crust-punk, black metal stuff before it came to my senses. And I think this album is an absolute dead ringer for it. It has these sort of these long, pretentious interludes of just like feedback and guitar noises and then this pounding blast beats come in and these howling vocals i think that somehow this neural network really really figured out what lo-fi black metal fans are going for and it nailed it can you kind of take us through what the researchers physically did like what were the steps that they took in order to train this neural network to make music First, the software broke apart a 2011 album by a New York black metal band called Kralis into short segments of audio. And then it fed each segment through a network of digital neurons modeled loosely on a biological brain and took a guess for each individual moment in the album at what the next individual sample of audio should be. And then it would compare it to what it in fact the next uh, moment of sound actually was on the actual track. And if its guess was correct, it would strengthen the paths through the neurons that led it to the correct answer. And every once in a while, the software would, would audit itself by um, using its evolving network to generate a short sample of sound. And at first, from the randomized neurons, it would just produce these washes of static and noise. But as it moved through guesses, and we're talking about millions and millions of iterations that took a fast computer literally three days of working full time, something extraordinary started to happen. The network was learning from its mistakes, and it started to generate riffs and percussion parts and vocals and even whole sections of songs that were clearly evocative of the black metal album by Kralis that they put in. And this album is called Coditani of Timeness? How did they come up with the name? 
after they generated the raw audio that you hear on the album, they used separate algorithms to generate the uh, the album art. They used something called a style shift where they took the album art of the source album and they sort of emphasized features in it and made it so that it looks a, a little bit like it, but it's a it's a computer's reinterpretation of it. And then they used a Markov chain, which is an older and much simpler technique to generate plausible sounding song titles for the works that the computer generated. Yeah, so some of these song titles are like Memorarian, Timension, Wisdom Trippin'. Yeah, exactly. It, to me, I mean, maybe a metal purist would push back against this, but to me, I think that they absolutely got it. Something, something about this neural network really hit the nail on the head. How is this different from other programmatic music creation experiments? So one of the two researchers who created this thing, C.J. Carr, was saying that, you know, though there have been some similar attempts before this, they either sounded very bot-made or what they were doing was sort of ingesting the symbolic music, like where the notes fall on a piano scroll or, or sheet music. And this project differs because the neural network is um, is actually generating the raw sound. It's actually not learning composition at all. Um, it's only l learning this low-level timbre representation. The process that it's generating is sort of, it's like this free, chaotic, um, like, guess what happens next? Guess what happens next? Guess what happens next? Which means it has a, a great range of expression that it can come up with. It can do. It can make its own percussion. It can make its own vocals. It can make its own um, guitar sounds, and it can capture textures that arguably no other artificial intelligence that creates music has been able to capture. And where can we hear this computer-generated black metal and other albums? They've actually got a band camp, just like regular musicians. And you can listen to these albums at dadabots.bandcamp.com. And CJ Carr told me they're going to be dropping a new album each week, which um, may also be inspired in some cases by heavy metal artists, but they, in other cases they may break into other genres like electronica and jazz. So I can't wait to hear what they come up with next. Awesome. Thank you so much, John. Thanks for having me. John Christian is a contributing writer at The Outline. Culture. You know those show descriptions on Netflix? The ones that are sort of a little bit off-kilter, or terse, or perhaps tongue-in-cheek. Like this one, for He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Quote, Five magic words turn a beefcake into a barbarian. The world's yours when you have a battle cat and a broadsword. I don't know what that means. Maybe you do. And Derek Ayo wanted to know who writes these, and it turns out it's pretty hard to get a straight answer. Hi, Anne. Hi, Adrian. What's your favorite Netflix description? My favorite Netflix description? The one that I noticed the most was actually the Heathers one. Often, you know, if you're looking up a movie you know, you kind of don't even look at the description that comes up when you hover over the thumbnail. But when I read Vicious Words, Deadly Pranks, and Pretty Little Suicide Notes, Welcome to the Most Popular Click in School, then I was like, these are interesting, and they're a little sassy, and I like it. 
How would you describe them? The interesting ones are concise, conversational, and they are intriguing, like weirdly intriguing. Like the one for Frank, which is, in a band led by a paper mache head, a so-called outcast better bring it. Let's have a toast to the weirdos. Like, let's have a toast to the weirdos has nothing to do with the movie at all. It's also, it sounds very contemporary. Like, I'm not sure that this will, you know, stand the test of time. Yeah, it's like almost written like tweets and then like something they would put before a link to the movie. Um, But as I was looking through them, it was weird because not all of them follow this sort of jokey format. Um, One of the things I found was PBS Nova has documentaries on Netflix So the one for Nova Deadliest Tornadoes, I like. I think it's interesting. They ravage towns and ruin lives. It's up to scientists to learn why and where they'll strike next. Dramatic. Yeah, right? But then the one for Nova Why Sharks Attack is just like, shark experts analyze the changing behavior patterns behind rising shark attacks and increasing numbers of predators in waters frequented by humans. Just sounds like homework. Yeah, like, I mean, I know it sounded interesting because I read it in an interesting, (laughs) cool way, but it actually was really boring. Okay, so I would think that the studio or someone, you know, the the distributor would have a pre-written synopsis for the movie. Why isn't Netflix using those? So I had a lot of questions about, you know, where these synopses are coming from. So I contacted the author of Netflix, The Epic Battle for America's Eyeballs. Um, The journalist who wrote it, Gina Keating, wrote back to me and told me that when Netflix first started in the late 90s, they did contact movie studios for permission to use the descriptions on the boxes and the photos from the boxes in their Um, database. But the movie studios would not give them that permission. I'm not sure why. Maybe because they were still a new company. They had no idea they were going to be so big. But then Netflix actually started scanning in descriptions from the boxes anyway and just, you know, piecemeal took them down as they got cease and desist letters. In the meantime, they partnered with a website called allmovies.com which is just a small um, movie fan website from the Midwest. Um, And then somewhere along the line, they started using remote freelance writers to do their synopses for them. So what happened when you asked Netflix to shed some light on this process? Um, Well, first of all, the people at Netflix are so polite. They immediately, you know, tried to get me to the right person. And when I got to the right person, they said we're going to pass on talking to you, but thanks anyway. So that to me was like, what is going on here? Why are they being so secretive about something so mundane? And then, I don't know, my my ideas went wild with what they could be hiding. Okay, so Netflix stonewalls you. What do you do next? Um, I looked around online and found Elisade Haas, who is a technical writer and movie reviewer, in Portland, but she in 2004 and 2005 was a synopsis writer. Basically, she would get a spreadsheet with a bunch of movies. Her job was to fill in the spreadsheet with descriptions for then, at that time, it was the labels on the on the DVDs. One thing she told me was like kind of got my attention, and that was they didn't pay the synopsis writers enough to watch the movies. And that's when I was like, that must be what they're hiding. So you know, I seized on that and I wrote back to the PR person and I got a really nice phone call from Netflix and they told me all about 
how their synopsis writers today are full-time and really experienced in the movie world. And she told me they don't watch all the programs that they synopsize except for Netflix originals because those writers just can't Google online to find out what the synopsis is about. Why do you think Netflix was so secretive about this the first time around if the answer was just, we have a staff who does it? Adrian, I have no idea. I feel like I got an education in the weird PR world where everything is a closely guarded secret. They don't want it. I don't know. Maybe just people just don't want to talk to me, but <laughs> I guess maybe they just don't have, they just don't want to release any information that could be used by competitors or something. I'm just guessing. I have no idea. So would you say the case of the mysterious Netflix synopses, case closed? You know, I think the door is cracked a little bit open still because I still don't understand why they wouldn't just tell me in the beginning. I still have a question in my mind. It's not a big, important question in the grand scheme of things, but I am interested to learn more about why, what they were, what they thought they were guarding there. And Derek Ayo is a staff writer here at The Outline. That's all for now. But never fear, Aaron Edwards and I are here four days a week, Monday through Thursday, and you can subscribe to hear a new World Dispatch each morning. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Adrian Jeffries. Back with more stories tomorrow. Tomorrow.